on 14. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 204 of 40 Going on 14. I am Mike. I am Patrick. I'm Joel. And I'm Josh. And if the Magnificent Seven and Seven Samurai has taught us anything, it's that if you go with the lowest bid on your contractor, four out of seven of them will die. (laughs) (laughs) Which is still better than the survival rate for the World Cup in Qatar. Uh, Wow. Nice. Absorbed. (laughs) Don't steal my bit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I gave you a half a beat to do it. You didn't do it. He took over. Well, that's, I'm not, Joel's not lying. I mean, Josh isn't lying because I got my roof done a couple years ago and Joel Olstein sat on my front lawn watching them. So. <laughs> All right. So this week we are oh, watching. neighbors, Joel Olstein might have showed up. That's true. Well, they're gone now, but uh, well, anyway. Uh, the Magnificent Seven. Uh, we, we have watched the original 1960s. Magnificent Seven. Unfortunately, we did not get back to watch the uh, Kurosawa original original. Uh, I'll talk about it very briefly because it's one of my all-time favorite movies. I still haven't seen it. No? Really? Yeah, uh, I, yeah I want to, but I just never have. I have a reason to watch it now, but I have not seen it yet. It's just one of those you know great movies I have on my list that I just never have gotten to. Well, yeah. at least you watch Parks and Rec. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, am on, I am on my third, my third roundabout on The Office, so at least I'm uh, you know I got. Got my priorities straight. You got that going for you. Well, if you've got your priorities straight, you should listen to the awesome podcasts of the Podcast Collective. Ooh. And I like that one. It was nice and natural. You'll find such shows as On the Block, That's The Coffin Joe Cast, I Am Salt Lake, The Empty Rant Podcast, and of course, The Rad Dad Radio Hour. Yep. And if you're looking for our older stuff, iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Podverse FM, NoonFM.com, and our home on the web at 40go14.com. You can find our shows there. If you'd like to give us a call, it's 708 now wrap. That's 708-669-9727. Speaking of which, do we have any feedback? We don't have any voicemail, but uh, as we were going rolling that down, I believe we had uh, a Twitter comment. Yeah, we did from uh, Randall Holt at RJHolt666. Uh, he was responding to the snack show. And uh, he uh, has this picture of O'Grady's. Oh, it might be, it might even be a video. Yeah, it's a video. <laughs> O'Grady's au gratin potato chips. Oh. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds pretty awesome. Huh. You know, they've been doing that wacky, different flavor potato chip thing for a while now. And I honestly, yeah, the biscuits and gravy one is pretty dang good. It's I good for been... like the first two or three bites. And then after that, I'm like, okay, it, it tastes too fake. Well, that's yeah. because you're surrounded by biscuits and gravy because you're in Texas. True. Yeah. I mean, biscuits and gravy are just handed out every time you walk. There's a guy standing out in the street just handing out biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> the biscuits and gravy and the chicken and waffles one. I felt that way about both of those. Oh, I ate whole bags of both of those. Not under, not uh, to disappoint you guys. I actually did like the mocha ones. Whoa. Uh, oh, the coffee, Whoa. the coffee chips. Yeah, it was kind of like the sweet, salty thing going on. I was all about the uh, wasabi soy ginger ones, and uh, they were the hardest ones to find in that round. But they like made the, the they won the round. Yeah, but for some reason, like I guess it, they had split cases. 
So like if there's 12 bags of each flavor, the first 12 to sell were always those. And then the store was stuck with the other 36. So it's like a Um, chase, like a chase figure for, yeah. If you like, if you like wasabi flavored chips, um, Sam's is having a limited uh, wasabi flavored Doritos that I bought for my sister and she liked them so much. She made me go buy six bags. (laughs) Oh, that that sounds awesome. Actually. Yeah, she, She said it's her favorite Doritos of all time. Wow. So if you get to Sam's Club, limited time. Yeah, I'm not paying for both Costco and Sam's Club. Maybe I'll buy some and bring them to Gen Con. Why not? Speaking of which, I might have um, some Krispy Kreme fruit fries for you. Oh, exchange you some wasabi Doritos. Because I I ate the two last week, and I don't get it. What? I I mean, it it was very similar to other fruit pies I've had. And uh, it didn't blow me away at all. Remember, he doesn't like the Eagles. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. This this is a man who (laughs) whose taste buds have always been in question. Well, I'm coming around a little bit on Will Arnett, so chill out, man. (laughs) (laughs) Cut me some slack. Once you check into the Hotel California, we'll talk. (laughs) Have you watched Bigelowski again yet? By the way, speaking of your bad taste, why would I? Only I only offered to do it the additional time you had. We, no, I still have to watch Death Proof, but did you watch it the second time yet for the time that yeah, I watched? I did that like months ago. Oh, did you? Okay, well, then I need to watch no. Death Proof. Okay. I went there. I, I was waiting for you. I didn't know you'd already gone. I got the uh, we talked about this. Krispy Kreme chocolate uh, pie. I smoke a lot. Which actually was really good. So good. Yeah. And unfortunately, the other thing I found there, they have they had energy drinks for 50 cents a can. So I'm... Uh-oh. Yeah, you guys are in trouble for Gen Con because I spent like 20 bucks. Mike's heart's going to explode. The longer we talk about last week's show, the fatter I get. So I think it's about that time. (laughs) It's definitely about that time. Mike's going to be walking around Gen Con looking like Beekman. (laughs) And? (laughs) This week in music, movies, and TV. And sports. That was a good one. That was a good one. All right. So we are looking at November 23rd, 1960. That's the release date of the original Magnificent Seven. And music. Top songs of this week are Stay by Maurice Williams and the Zodiacs. Are You Lonesome Tonight by Elvis Presley. And Poetry in Motion by Johnny Tillotson. Tillotson? Tillotson. Tillotson. I'd like a Talatsen fillet with some lemon. Mm. I was addicted to Talatsen. Addicted? Addicted. <laughs> it's not just me. All right. <laughs> oh, these are all three really good songs. I don't know if Poetry in Motion is a really good song. I like it. I like it. It's okay. It's not anything great. I like Will Arnett's version of it. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> it's not true. It doesn't exist. Uh, all right. Born November 18th. Kim Wilde is an English pop singer, author, DJ, and television presenter who burst onto the music scene in 1981 with her debut single, Kids in America. In 1986, she had another hit with her version of the Supreme song, You Keep Me Hanging On, topping the charts in 1987. Between 1981 and 1996, she had 25 singles reach the top 50 of the UK singles chart. Worldwide, she has sold over 10 million albums and 20 million singles. While still active in music, she has branched into an alternative career as a landscape gardener with Johnny Tillotson. <laughs> like, imagine that. Like, you, you hire somebody to, to come plant your azaleas, and Kim Wilde shows up. 
or just like having vanilla ice show up to flip your house. <laughs> or David Lee Roth's <laughs> save your life in an accident. Wait, what? David Lee Roth was an EMT for a while. You didn't know that? I did not know. That's a deadly true story. He was. Oh, EMT. my God. <laughs> Can you imagine? Like you, you just got to imagine you're in shock. He shows up. He's like, whoa. He starts putting the splint on and everything. He starts doing mouth to mouth on you. Like, ah. How about jump? Clear. God damn it. <laughs> you, you taste like heroin and bad women. Why is he wearing this weird jumpsuit thing? Anyway. Yeah, he comes out with a scarf. <laughs> right. Uh, next. Oh, and in this next one, Joel, there is no acronym of the week. We forgot to tell you that. Oh, yeah. Oh. Okay, so that's the name. That is not. That is not the acronym of the week. That's no. the name of the band. Yep. No, that just re- refers to... I did, it was done the same time, which obviously it clearly did not do anymore. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Well, when it's already that fucking long, how is it going to save time? <laughs> that's what she said. hey Uh, So should I know what that is? Yeah, just, be, you'll figure it out. Okay. Matt Sorum was born November 19th. He is an American drummer and former member of the hard rock band Guns N' Roses and a member of the supergroup Velvet Revolver. Sorum is also a former member of both The Cult and Why Can't Tori Read, Tori Amos' first band. Sorum was also a member of Guns N' Roses' side projects, Slash of Snake Pit, and Neurotic Outsiders. In 1999, or it's 1990, Jesus Christ, in 1990, <laughs> while touring for Aha, Why Can't Tori Read, Sorum was spotted by Guns N' Roses guitarist Slash and subsequently replaced this drummer, their drummer, Stephen Adler. Remaining in the band for seven years, Sorum recorded the albums Use Your Illusion 1, Use Your Illusion 2, and The Spaghetti Incident before departing in 1997 following an argument with Axl Rose. As is tradition. Yeah, Stephen Adler uh, is not what we're talking about. Uh, Sorum <laughs> has been a permanent member of a hard rock cover band Camp Freddy since 2003 alongside Jane's Addiction members Dave Navarro and Chris Cheney. In 2012, Sorum founded a touring project entitled Kings of Chaos, featuring members of Guns N' Roses, Deep Purple, Def Leppard, Aerosmith, ZZ Top, Cheap Trick, and Slipknot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the appropriate reaction. (laughs) Showed up and they were like, well, just just let them stay. Put them on tambourine. Yeah. Like a guy with a mask on, a guy with like a four foot beard, Robin Zander. I don't know. It's just a weird combination of things. They all go to Kings of Chaos. Uh, the, the uniting factors, they all got into it with Axl Rose. <laughs> they, should, they should add, like, like uh, I don't know, Bismarck Key to the mix or something. Anyway, also in 2012, Sorum was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of Guns N' Roses. I bet Axl Rose likes Krispy Kreme pie. <laughs> I was going to say, everybody's disagreed with <laughs> Axl Rose except Krispy Kreme. <laughs> we were thinking the exact same thing. <laughs> uh... Anyway, last but not least, Amy Grant, American gospel rock singer of songs such as Glory of Love and Baby Baby, was born in Augusta, Georgia on November 25th. Hooray! Had anything to say about that? No. I had a a crush on Amy Grant when I was uh, a young Christian gentleman. And you can't have a crush on her now that you're not a young Christian gentleman? No, I just had a crush on her because, I mean, if you were a young Christian gentleman, she was pretty much it. I mean, she's attractive. Stop it, Josh. No, that's actually correct. Is and I'm going to have to get it. Yeah, I fixed right. it and then I unfixed it. Okay. Speaking of which, movies. Oh, wait. I was going to... Wait, no. wasn't Amy Grant a member of Kings of Chaos? 
<laughs> no, but she did get into it with Axl Rose. <laughs> That's true. I could be wrong. She could be under the masks and Slipknot. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> Gooby Doo type turnaround there. That was the joke I was going to make, but you you beat me with the Axel joke, Axel Rose joke, and it was much better. So, all right, movies. The number one movie of the week is not The Magnificent Seven, but rather Butterfield Eight. And this is weird because both Pat and I kept trying to correct the spelling on Butterfield Eight, but Butterfield starts with a capital B, capital U, and then goes into Butterfield Eight uh, because apparently it's referring to the way they used to do phone numbers. Mm-hmm. Be you referring to like two six eight for the title? Klondike eight one five. Something, yeah, exactly like that. This uh, movie, Butterfield 8, was starring Elizabeth Taylor and Lawrence Harvey. It was based off the John O'Hara novel of the same name, and it maintains its spot at the number one spot for three weeks, only interrupted by North to Alaska starring John Wayne. And it says here, according to IMDb, the plot of this film is simply a Manhattan call girl has a tragic affair with a rich married man. That sounds like it should have been beating, not beating the Magnificent Seven. I mean, if you distill uh, the plot of a bunch of like 50 shades of gray, it would sound just about that boring. Well, you could, uh, just, Elizabeth oh. Taylor also. Yeah. yeah. 1960s. Good point. Playing the seductress too. So that's you know, also a good point. Back yes. when she was drop dead gorgeous. Yeah. Also. A yeah. Good point. She was pretty much the biggest star at the time, at least uh, actress. Yeah, you can make a case for uh, Steve McQueen being a bigger star in general. But anyway, uh, one of our show's favorites, apparently, even though I'm not sure who she is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amanda Wiss was born. Weiss. What's that? White. You know her. You know her. <laughs> Do I? Brad Mew. Asshole. Um. <laughs> Amanda Weiss was born November 24th. She is an American film and television actress who first gained notice for her role as Lisa in the acronym of the week, which is F-T-A-R-H, which, of course, is Fat Transylvanians at Rocky Horror. (laughs) (laughs) Almost. Almost. That's uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Ah. Wow. Would you believe I've only seen it once? Wow. Which I just read an article today on IMDb that uh, David Lynch was originally attached to direct that before. Oh, my God. How great that he didn't. <laughs> what about a totally different movie? And Amanda Weiss, just so you know, she's remember Nightmare on Elm Street, the girl in the body bag that gets dragged. Yeah, let, let, her, let, her, let him finish reading here. Uh, okay. She then rose to prominence after playing Tina in A Nightmare on Elm Street and was Beth in Better Off Dead, among others. Outside of film, Weiss's guest starred on a variety of television series, including Cheers, Charmed, and Dexter. Like I told you, you know her. You don't know her. I don't know the name. I'm sure I'd recognize her. Yeah, the, the, Beth, the, the girlfriend from Better Off Dead that left him for the ski instructor. Yeah, like I've seen that movie a couple times. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I, I just Googled her picture, and I'm not sure I could have picked her out of the cro- out of the crowd. I, but Joel I, and I like her a lot. I, I actually... Saw her recently in, um, she's on the Netflix show uh, Glow. Is she? Yes. Nice. I will look for that. I just Is started she? watching it. I yes. just watched all of Glow. Who did she play? She plays the producer's mom. Oh. I just started watching it. I watched the first episode last night. 
I'm pretty sure. They, yeah, they they greenlit it for a uh, another season too. So, I love Allison yeah. Brie. She's very I'm, funny. I'm pretty sure that's. Oh no, no, that's not even her. I don't know who the hell I'm thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> wait. Oh wait, the girlfriend in Big. Not Big. Better off dead. What did we talk about? Big. Big no one up. talked about big. Big is coming up. It's not Jesus Christ. All right. Well, oh, there you go. That's <laughs> Elizabeth Perkins. That's who I'm talking about. Ah, already. Yeah. I'm gonna take. I'm gonna we're, read TV and then go get myself some more coffee. Uh, we're, we're off to a great start. <laughs> yeah. Smooth people, sailing. What people pay for. Uh, TV. Born November 18th. Elizabeth Perkins is an American actress from movies and television, starring in the aforementioned Big, Miracle on 34th Street, and About Last Night, among others. However, she's mostly known for her Golden Globe and Emmy Award-winning role on Weeds. And her Golden Globes. So anyway, television is stuck in the Wild West in 1960 with Gunsmoke, Wagon Train, and Have Gun, Will Travel as the top three shows. In fact, out of the top ten shows of 1960, half of them are set in the West, and the other two are actually the real McCoys and Rawhide. Rawhide. Yeah. See, yeah, just mentioning those shows has got the theme song for Have Gun, Will Travel stuck in my head. A night without armor. (laughs) Paladin. Yeah. Uh, All right, moving on to sports. Sports. Known as the First Lady of Wrestling, Elizabeth Ann Hewlett, born November 19th, was an American professional wrestling manager best known as Miss Elizabeth, or simply Elizabeth. She gained international fame in the WWF and WCW in her role as a manager to wrestler Macho Man Randy Savage. Oh, yeah as well as other wrestlers of that period. She died as a result of a drug and alcohol overdose on May 1st, 2003, in the home of that she shared with wrestler Lex Luger. One, two, three, absorbed. <laughs> I knew that was going. He's down for the count. Permanently. Oh, and I don't know why I did this to myself. Reasons? Here we go. Kaha Kachichi Patabangdiji Jayananda Warna Weera, <laughs> a former Sri Lankan cricketer who played in 10 tests and six ODIs from 1986 to 1994, was born November 23rd. A fast off-spin bowler, when he retired, he achieved most of his fame as the chief curator of the Gal International Cricket Stadium. He was suspended for three years by the ICC for failing to cooperate with the anti-corruption unit in an investigation. Well, that's Kahakachichi for you. I think we need to have that name as like a bonus question in uh, instant game show. And <laughs> if you can say the name correctly in under three seconds, you win like a prize. Yeah. Of some Who sort. judges that? Yeah. <laughs> we, we won't know if they got it right or not. Good. Symbols. What? I don't know. I never mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's early. Get Tourette's. What was that? This is what happens when we record in the morning. <laughs> All right, and lastly in the twee, in the sports, on November 24th, Wilt Chamberlain set yet another unbreakable NBA record with 55 rebounds in one game. And only two STDs. (laughs) That is right. Good point. That is more than one rebound per minute, just FYI. Wow. Yeah. There's 48 minutes in an NBA game. At that point, he's probably just like, just tipping them up to himself, just fucking with people like, (laughs) ah, ah." (laughs) He blocks his own shots. 
Rebound back. With his right hand and smacks it away with his left. <laughs> I got a block and then I got the rebound. And an assist. Oh. <laughs> he got 14 assists on himself. <laughs> Take a side for Joel. Da, 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 da. All right. So, Josh, do you want to lead us in with a little bit of history on the uh, Seven Samurai before we get totally into this? Yeah, because we're doing the Magnificent Seven show, I'm not going to spend too much time on Kurosawa's classic. But what's interesting about it is the Seven Samurai was a samurai film that was inspired by the American Western. So I always found it interesting that it was remade as a Western when it was sort of like, what if we made a Western but set in feudal Japan? That was the original concept, where you've got the farmers uh, being brutalized by the local warlord. The farmers go for uh, seven soldiers for hire to defend their village. And uh, especially the original, this 1960 uh, Magnificent Seven, uh, it follows the plot of the seven samurai pretty quickly uh pretty closely rather and uh if you watch it it's got some very deliberate slow pacing but uh the original seven samurai pioneered some camera tricks and techniques that no one had tried before and pretty much influenced every movie made after it oh yeah this today yeah and that's and that's one of the things when i was looking at the the theme of gang of roustabouts helps people in need. I mean, this goes through all the way from movies to television. I mean, look at the A-team. You know, you've got the these group of guys helping out people. Ragtag group of renegades. Yes, that's exactly it. I mean, and this that kind of Seven Samurai set that theme for this style of movie. So. Except with swords. Yeah, and right. just stuff uh, about the camera work. There was... Uh, techniques that were used to give the film movement that have been, like I said, have been used ever since and no one had done before. Right. So, um, this starred, well, directed by John Sturgis and starred Yul Brenner, Eli Wallach, Horace Bolschultz playing the German guy playing a Mexican, which was kind of interesting. Uh, James Coburn, Bragg Dexter, Steve McQueen, Robert Vaughn, and Charles Bronson. Um, Turns out that there was some tension between Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen, who uh, McQueen was upset because he only had seven lines in the whole movie. And uh, McQueen took numerous opportunities to try and upstage Yul Brenner and draw attention to himself, including taking his hat down and covering his eyes, flipping a coin when Brenner was doing one of his speeches, uh, rattling the shotgun shells in his gun, or as one of the one of the scenes when they're crossing over into Mexico, he reaches down off the cart to scoop up water with his hat. Um, Yul Brenner uh, was only half an inch taller than Steve McQueen and would actually go out before they would shoot and make little pounds of little piles of dirt on his blocking spots to make himself look taller than Steve McQueen when they were standing next to each other. And then immediately after Steve McQueen would go out there and knock down all the little piles of dirt. Um, Brenner issued a press statement declaring, I never feud with actors. I feud with studios, which I think was untrue. Um, Years later, uh, Buchholz said that Brenner had put a stop to McQueen's antics by telling him the next time that he tried to upstage him, he was going to take off his hat, and then nobody was going to look at him. Yeah, I love that. It's like, you touch your hat again, I'll take mine off, and no one will even look at you. 
movies. <laughs> so, so there was a lot of shit going on on this. So this, unfortunately, though, this Magnificent uh, Seven didn't great, get great reviews. Uh, the New York Times called it pallid, pretentious, and overlong reflection of the Japanese original. And Variety commented that until the women and children arrive on the scene about two-thirds of the way through, the Magnificent Seven is a rip-roaring, rootin'-tootin' western with lots of bite and tang and old-fashioned abandon. The last third is downhill, a long and cluttered anti-climax, which the Magnificent Seven grows slightly too magnificent for comfort. Uh, Akira Kurosawa, though, however, loved the movie and presented John Sturgis with a samurai sword. Nice. Now kill yourself with it. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty badass. Also, this inspired, like, Eli Wallach is obviously not Mexican, but without uh, the Magnificent Seven, he never would have appeared as Tuco in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Oh, yeah. And this is actually Steve McQueen credits this movie for, you know, for making himself go from TV to uh, to movies uh, at the 33rd Academy Awards. The score was nominated for best score of a dramatic or comedy picture, losing to Ernest Gold's score for Exodus. Uh, decades later, however, the score for the Magnificent Seven was listed at number eight for the American Film Institute's list of the top 25 American film scores. And it is iconic. I mean, you, you hear it and you immediately recognize it. Um, oh, sure. I mean, there are parodies of it throughout uh, Western comedies, pa- everything past 1960. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and it's they actually uh, well, we'll talk about that later on the new one. But um, just, you know, a number eight out of the top 25 of all time American film scores. That's pretty good stuff. I have to look up and see what beat it. Uh, unfortunately, the film was a box office disappointment in the United States, but uh, was a smash hit in Europe that it ultimately made a profit. They made three sequels, The Return of the Seven, Guns of the Magnificent Seven, and The Magnificent Seven Ride Again, but none were as successful as the original. This also uh, kicked in a television series, The Magnificent Seven, which ran from 1998 to 2000. Uh, with Robert Vaughn as a recurring guest star as a judge who hires a seven to protect the town in which his widowed daughter-in-law and his grandson live. They also made a TV show out of it um, before the movie was remade. And uh, just to answer your question about uh, Magnificent Seven, the other ones that uh, beat it out, Laura, Jaws, The Godfather, Psycho, Lawrence of Arabia, Gone with the Wind, and number one, Star Wars. That's a yeah. pretty good list, although I don't. I'm not familiar with Laura. Yeah, I was gonna say I probably could have nailed maybe five of those, but I just guessed. Yeah, I yeah. I don't even know what the hell Laura is. So uh, this again, we said John Sturgis. If you don't know who that is, The Great Escape, Bad Day at Black Rock, Ice Station Zebra, and written by William Roberts, oh. uh, who wrote such other things as Major Pain. Oh. No, yeah, well, <laughs> wow, yeah, no, I I found that one. St- that he actually did a a pre-write of that Damon one. Damon Wayans movie? Yes. He has he is credited as a writer for Major Pain. Um but also he's the Bridget Regimen, uh Ride the High Country, The Love Possessed. You know, he's the you know, he's got a ton of great movies that he has written for, so I'm just being an ass. <laughs> they they must have like just stolen something straight out of the dialogue from this movie or something. Well, there, the film required extensive rewrites. I didn't see this in the, the trivia. And uh, his script was rewritten so much by uh, another guy. I can't remember his name that he actually pulled his name from the uh, project. 
uh, very little of his original screenplay made it to the screen. For Major Payne? No, no, for The Magnificent Seven. Oh, wow. God, there wasn't that, as much controversy about Major Payne. I, I know why I was, I was so confused about it. <laughs> right. All right, so this starred Yoel Brenner as Chris Litterby Adams, Eli Wallach as Cal- Calvera, Steve McQueen as Vin Tanner, Horst Bullschultz as Chico, Charles Bronson as Bernardo O'Reilly, Robert Vaughn as Lee, Brad Dexter as Harry Luck, and James Coburn as Brit. Uh, and Jorge, George Martinez de Hoyos as Hilario. That was the, I think that was the... Um, that was El Guapo. He was so funny. No, El, El Guapo's Calvera. Uh, okay. Hilario's the bar owner. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So, like I said, The Magnificent Seven was a box office dud. It grossed $4.9 million after a budget of $2 million, but strangely made $7 million in France. <laughs> They're huh. like their bald Western heroes. I know, right? Uh, the bandit gang that was hired for Calvera adopted Eli Wallach as one of their own in the mornings before shooting started. But after Wallach was in costume, he and the group would go riding together for about an hour. And then the members of the gang insisted on doing the final checks for his horse tack and prop gun before he was allowed to touch either. <laughs> That's kind of weird. That's <laughs> a little strange. But uh, in later years, thankfully, Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen reconciled. McQueen, dying of cancer, called Brenner to thank him. What for, queried Brenner. You could have kicked me off the movie when I rattled you, replied McQueen. But you let me stay in that picture, you made, and that picture made me, so thanks. Brenner told him, I am the king and you are the rebel prince, every bit as royal and dangerous to cross. McQueen replied, I had to make it up with Yul because without him, I wouldn't have been in that picture. Ka-chow. So, nice. Um... Brenner apparently was so worried about McQueen stealing his limelight scenes that he hired an assistant to count the number of times that Steve McQueen touched his own hat when he was speaking. <laughs> That's weird. <clears throat> I want you to watch him. And- I could almost see that. Just like, it's like, is he messing with his hat every time I fucking talk? Yeah, because so, so he could focus on his lines. He'd be like, I want you to count every single time he touches his hat, etc., etc., etc. Um. Composer John Williams was a member of the orchestra that recorded Elmer Bernstein's score, and he played the piano. Wow. I know, right? And I love this part. Steve McQueen wanted to be in this film, but couldn't at first because the schedule of his TV series wanted Dead or Alive. So he crashed a car, and then while he was out sick, he shot the Magnificent (laughs) (laughs) And I could not think of a more Steve McQueen thing than that. I want to be in this movie. Well, you can't. You got to shoot this. Fuck that. Get in the car. Oh, I'm destroyed your prop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it also, it's interesting if you count the two Westworld uh, movies, Yul Brenner played Chris four times because uh, the gunslinger from Westworld is the exact same costume. It's supposed to be a robot of Chris Larrabee Adams. That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, a little fun that. fact about Yul Brenner. When I was a kid, uh, he performed uh, was doing a touring performance of the king and i and my mom took me to see it oh wow yeah that's the role that like made him a superstar yeah Yeah. i had the chance to see him live on stage before he passed away which at the time i didn't appreciate it but as an adult and especially after this movie i i like him anyway but i'd never seen this this was the first time i've actually seen this one and, it's much uh, better than seeing him after he passed away. Right, right. It's they're like they're waiting for him to say et cetera, et cetera, and there's just flies. Um, he he just exuded cool and charisma, 
and even though he was a little out of place being a, a completely bald dude in the in the West, because you don't see that in the other movies. He usually got, you know, dirty hair and they're all tussled and look like they have slept on the ground. He always looked cool. But um and then oh yeah, and then Charles Bronson, of course. You all know I have a weird thing about Charles Bronson. Uh, he was perfectly cast in this, especially considering like his character is like half Mexican, half Irish, and he looks it a lot more than Horst Buchholz looks like a Chico. <laughs> right. <laughs> Even though Charles Bronson is neither of those things. Yeah, but like you look at his face and they're, they're like, this character is half Mexican, half Irish. You could go, yeah, I see it. Yeah, he's, yep. he's played uh, played both those types in other films as well. So. <laughs> Well, what what nationality is Charles Bronson? Uh, Irish. Oh. <laughs> no, uh, he's. Um, you don't know. He's actually I'm, from the Congo. He's Lithuanian. No, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, a, I'm looking at his bio right now. He was born from a Lithuanian immigrant coal miner. Oh, thank you. His original last name was Paczynski, and I was thinking Volinsky. No, I thought you were. Yeah, I'm looking at his bio right now. <laughs> you oh, said his you were mother. A man. I am a fan. It's Buczynski is his original last name. You know we're talking about Charles Bronson, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know. Like this whole time it's actually he's... been Paulie Shore. You, you oh, and... I thought no. that was Charles Bronson. See, that's why he's confused. We're talking about the Lithuanian Charles Bronson. Oh, <laughs> uh, right. Who was born Charles Bronson, but is actually Charles Buczynski. <laughs> uh, rest in peace, Charlie. I'm sorry. So... How many of us was this the first time you'd seen it? Me. This wow. was the first time I'd seen it all the way through. I'd seen the finale at least twice before. So. I'm, with, I'm with Josh on this one. This is the first time I've seen it start to finish. Uh, the first time I ever saw it, and the only other time I ever saw it, was I had to have been around like 10 or 11 years old. Um, I know I wasn't 12, but it was one of the visits that my dad and I used to make to uh, Hannibal to see my grandparents, and my grandfather showed it to me. My dad and I watched it with my grandfather once. Nice. This, this and then The Dirty Dozen. Oh, nice, that's nice, a great movie. Yeah. Nice twofer for a you know 10-year-old kid to be watching. It's the only thing that really was missing from this film was Lee Marvin. And you would have had like all of the testosterone of the 60s all jammed into one film. Kind of okay. like The Dirty James Dozen. James Coburn was, was playing a pretty good Lee Marvin. Yeah. No kidding. He was so badass in this. <laughs> like the scene towards the end where he everybody's kind of ducking to fire their weapons when they do kind of the last stand or whatever. Right. <laughs> and he's just standing all fully upright, no cover, just like bang, bang. He's leaning up against the wall, just casually just shooting. Smoking <laughs> a cigarette, shooting his gun, like whatever. Yeah. I, I think, honestly, out of all of them, and also, I mean, he, I think partially they did that is because Lee Marvin is like, I'm not like, James Coburn is uh, 6'2". So having him just standing there firing off as everybody else that, and the opening scene where he does the uh, knife fight the gun versus night knife in the very beginning. Yep. Yeah. And he just goes back, yep, kill a man, get up, kill a man, go back, take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and the whole thing with Charles Bronson and the kids, I mean, uh, you could see maybe some of the other actors going that route, but for some reason with him, it just worked that much better. Um, because even though he's got that very hard exterior, he can pull off kind of the sweet, nice guy inside and i i just really like those exchanges with them and then of he's course a tender-hearted the dude at the end when uh who could rip your face off he finally dies i'm just like oh man spoiler sorry all oh, because oh, he's trying to save the kids yeah yeah 
The second we, they kept running up, I'm like, oh, this dude's dead. Yeah. <laughs> As kids in a kids in a gunfight, that always helps you out. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's what you need. Stop helping. Just no, like I, you to bring kids to a gunfight. What? <laughs> Just Charles Bronson grabs him by the ankle, starts swinging him around. Um, I got kid chucks. <laughs> the trick is attaching the chain to both sides. Almost like a rat tail. Um, I for for the first time I've actually sat through this movie. I initially was put off by the pacing, and I do agree with some of the from of the uh, some of the reviews that I talked about, where it's just they seem to force the them getting redeemed. In there, I think one of the one of the uh, articles that I read, a review in a Variety, talked about how in the Seven Samurai, you've got these this the samurai come in to protect the town. The samurai are known as being noble fighters, protecting the innocent. And this one, you added on this whole redemption storyline that wasn't apparent that wasn't there in the fir- in Seven Samurai. Well, so, a lot of the guys took the job for reasons that were just really not very well covered in the movie. They they just kind of, okay, I guess I'll take it because plot. <laughs> I liked Harry Luck. The, the whole time he's convinced that there's actually secret gold somewhere. Right, and so like a couple of them make sense, but some of them, they're just, like Charles Bronson's just like, I've been paid you 600 for this, 800 for this. He's like, all right, whatever, two, 20 bucks, sure. Well, it's but just, they had established that he was down on his luck at that point. He was oh, I know, but I'm, I'm just, I'm just pointing out, they, they kind of shoehorned everybody into the whole thing. So twenty bucks was a lot to him at that point. It, it was it was it was like the beginning of a D and D campaign where you just got to get everybody in the party. You're like, all right, let's just do some quick backstory, and get you in there. Yeah, well, and I, I'm surprised I hadn't seen this one because I went through my uh, just like nothing but Charles Bronson movies for an entire month, and somehow this one escaped my radar. But um, the whole thing with Robert Vaughn kind of took me by surprise initially, but he played that to the hilt. That whole uh, he's been got almost like a PTSD syndrome mm-hmm. from being a gunfighter for so long and being such a good killer that he no longer has the ability to, to fire his weapon. Yeah. Yeah. And he's got the whole gentleman gunfighter thing down and he's doubling down on his persona. So nobody ever challenges him. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly, I thought Robert Vaughn was fantastic. In this one, just the whole look, like you said, the clean cut gentleman killer. You know, but well, I'm sorry, Josh, with the other thing that you said, I did really enjoy Brad Dexter as Harry Luck because it seems like every time he had a conversation with the old Brenner and Dole's like, look, there is no gold. Oh, no, sure there isn't. You know, no way. I know. That's I know just what someone hiding gold would say. <laughs> <laughs> and you can see like in the, in the first conversation where Chris is talking to uh, Harry Luck and he's like, yo, no, I'm on to you. Yo, yeah, of course, no gold. And he's just like, all right, fine, whatever. You know, you're you're on. Okay, and he's, he's finally dying. He's like, yeah, yeah, there's gold somewhere. Just die already. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Um, Robert Vaughn's character, Lee, I I would have liked to have seen just a bit more of a redemption for him. I mean, he he tries, but I think they, they handled it a little better in the, the remake with Ethan Hawke's analog of him. But um, I, I kept hoping for just a little bit more to kind of... Instead, um, of, just a, instead of just a weird, awkward death. Yeah. It, yeah, it, I... I think that there was a lot of um, some of the reading that I did that there is a lot of his backstory and a lot of his character development was left on the cutting room floor. And that's unfortunate because he really did it, just embody that character. 
Um, the interesting thing about Chico, like if you haven't seen the seven samurai, Chico is probably fricking annoying, but Chico is a Western, uh, translation of the insane comedy relief, uh, Toshiro Mifune character in the original. And if you've seen any Kurosawa, Mifune is always like the best actor. And in seven samurai, he just like, he's constantly drunk, uh, obviously incompetent and follows around the other six until they just basically accept him because he's not going away. See, and I, at at first I kind of felt a little bit like that with Chico. I'm like, who is this? You know, I know this guy's going to be part of it, but I was like, what is going on with this character? But it didn't take too long to start to appreciate him until he infiltrated the ranks of the bad guys. And I'm like, is this a good idea? What, what, what the hell are you thinking? Yeah, the, the whole time he's just standing there out in the open, staring at all of them, talking to them. I'm, I'm like, how is this not going to go south? Because <laughs> their numbers are getting constantly dwindled down. That, you know, and that that's not the moment you when there's only eight of them left. You just show up. Hey guys, I'm one of you. <laughs> but what, what's up, fellow high school students? <laughs> his whole character was his judgment is shitty. Yeah, and then he does the stupidest thing he's done the entire movie, and he gets away with it. <laughs> And it turns out to be super important, right? And he got away. You know, it's like everything he did, he got away with, and that's how you either turn into a legend or a dead young kid, like they said. You know, well, he nearly uh, earlier he nearly got uh, Brit killed. Like if Brit hadn't been like this master with gun and knife, uh, Chico would have gotten him killed before the first fight. How do you infiltrate a, a band of bad guys? Put on some bandoleros and a cap and a poncho, and you can sneak in anywhere. You don't even need an accent. Right? Well, keep in mind, he's supposed to be Mexican, even though he's obviously not. It's like, <laughs> what the I, hell? Our leader's Eli Wallach. <laughs> I think that's probably what made it so kind of uh, obvious that it, it wouldn't work in a real-life situation is because he did look like you know this gringo that just kind of wandered in. But nobody seemed to notice, and and you think about it, kind of like in the the Three Amigos, which is yet again another take on the same story. When um, you know, they try to infiltrate El Guapo's gang, and it works for a couple minutes, but they realize it. You know, they don't fall for it like in in this I, film. I can't wait to watch Three Amigos again and catch a lot of the jokes that I had missed because I hadn't seen this in forever. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess you could say that one of the points they're trying to make is that Calvera has so many guys that he can't possibly recognize them all. Yeah, I think that's definitely what they were trying to. But I mean, as, as I said, it's like when the numbers start dwindling down because you're killing them all is not the time to try to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, the stones on him to grab a match and uh, light his cigar. <laughs> right. Which actually probably helped because you don't look at the guy who's serving you. He was probably right. looking at the match, not at the dude holding it. And he's kind of behind the tree and intentionally, the way he does it, does it in such a way that it draws attention away from himself, even though he's drawing attention to himself. And, and it's, it's like a lot of con men say, you know, hide in plain sight. You know, like you, you make yourself more obvious and then you just kind of blend in. Or not. No, I, I I thought Mike. That's the part where Mike would say something, but I was distracted by this hitman that just wandered into my basement. I didn't notice <laughs> the table. Oh, well, nice knowing. It's a good excuse. <laughs> uh, now, one interesting thing in all of the incarnations of this story, 
uh, four of the seven die. But it's never the same four in terms of the archetypes. Like the leader always lives and four of the others always die. In the script, they knew which four had to die, but because of the problems with rewrites, they actually didn't know which order to kill them off in. I thought five died in this one. Nope. Wasn't it only uh, Yul Brynner and McQueen that what that wrote off? Uh, who was the other one to live? Chico lived in this one. Yeah, he uh, stayed lived. with the village. Oh, shit. That's right. Yeah, because he fell in love with the girl. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Forgot. But yeah, yeah, the two of them right off, and that's probably why you were. Yeah. Confused. That's what stuck with my mind, apparently. And uh, I, they ended up rewriting Harry Luck's death scene, him getting shot in the back, coming back into town. Because I think it's Robert Vaughn who dies first, uh, or who dies second. Originally, he was supposed to die first, and he was kind of pissed about it. Oh. So they're like, okay, we'll, we'll reshoot this scene so Harry Luck gets shot in the back, and he dies first. I didn't like uh, Vaughn's death. It just, I don't know, it just seemed like he was too, he, he should have, I was expecting him to come back to his original form. You know, he it, sort of did, though. Like, they made a point that he used to be able to specifically grab three flies with his hand. And then when he uh, unleashed all the prisoners, he killed three guys before they could touch their guns. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. So I think that was the moment. It's like, this is what I used to be able to do. We get a moment seeing him do that again. And then he gets all of the prisoners out and turns the tide of the battle before he dies. I don't know. I always, I've always been a big fan of Robert Vaughn. I like him in all the stuff that I see him in. I mean, he's got a great, uh, a great look. He, I mean, very angular looking face, you know, but I, it seems like everything that I've seen him in, I've always enjoyed him in. Stoic. He's got a very stoic face. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I liked him in, I mean, even when he was dancing with the gorilla and the man from uncle, (laughs) you know, and he's, he just seems like, I don't know. I, for some strangely enough, for some reason, I'm a fan of Robert Vaughn. I like him. Well, and I'm I'm not a, a fan of westerns, and I think that may be why this one escaped my radar in my original run of of films. But um, the more that I see of some of the classics, the more I can appreciate them. And I really enjoyed this one specifically. Not, I think, primarily just because of the cast, but um, it just has a really good feel to it. Like even with the slight pacing problems and things, it's just a really well done film overall. And and uh, everybody in it just it's everyone's stealing the scene from each other. But I think that's kind of what makes it enjoyable is that they're all big names in their own right. That uh, it works well. This is yeah. just one of those <clears throat> one of those iconic Westerns. You know, it's like one of the grandfathers of the Western genre. And like until something like Ocean's Eleven, the, the remake, you would have thought that you'd never again get an ensemble cast with so many big names of the time together. Well, it seemed to be a thing that was, I mean, you look at the Magnificent Seven, even, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Dirty Dozen, you know, mm-hmm. a little later. I mean, you've got these just phenomenal actors all shoved together in one movie. And it did seem like there was a period where they kind of went away from that. And then in the 90s, I remember there was that resurgence. And then we're starting to see that again with uh, Stallone's Expendables kind of bringing that back into vogue. Yeah, well, I think uh, a lot of it became if your name was so big, you demanded so much money that you just couldn't afford six or seven names that big. Mm-hmm. 
So you Unless get the, they all just decided they were going to do a vanity project together. Right. That's the thing is you get these things where they want to work together so bad. They're all willing to take a pay cut to have a good time. And those are the best just to go vacation, at, you know, Clooney's Vila. What were you yeah. saying, Mike? I was going to say those, those are, in my opinion, some of the best ones when it's people that are acting together there just to be in the movie. You know why? Cause it sounds like a lot of fun. You know, it's not a contracts are hammered out. You know, everything is, you know, nailed, put together by lawyers and agents beforehand. It's, hey, you know what? I'll do this movie for 20 bucks just because it looks like it'll be a riot to, to film. You know, I think we need more movies like that. But then we need more actors that are willing to do that. So <laughs> We need less Ocean's 12s, though. Yes, we do. So we about wrap this one up. Anybody got anything else to say? I'll take your silence as consent. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Over, overall, um, this, you know, it has some pacing issues, and some of the writing is, you know, a little bit hokey. I didn't Six. like the fact that um, that the, the village kind of turned on them towards the end, and they had to come back and you know fight basically for their own pride. I think we, the story could have done without that. And um, spoiler alert: I'm glad they did do away with that in the, in the remake. Um, I understand that that's what they were kind of set up the whole time with when you. When you take a deal like this, you see it through to the end. They're kind of setting up the whole, you know, they're going to turn on you. But, I mean, they easily could have just taken that out, too. Yeah, well, I think the way that they had built the story up to that point, uh, there's no way the good guys lose unless the village turns on them. Well, I don't think the villagers felt like they had a choice, though, because once they realized that, you know, the guys had left and, uh, I mean, there's not really too many ways out of that situation, because once the guys are all in the village and there's no more element of surprise and they can't, you know, set up a good defense, there really wasn't any way for them to win that. So, I mean, the villagers, I think, took in their mind the smart way out, thinking that there was no other way to go. Huh. I, I don't know how much of the force was killed in the surprise attack, but like Calvera's forces were weakened. And everybody's celebrating, and everybody thought it was over. And I, I think one of the points they were trying to make is that s some of the villagers said, yeah, we see this through to the end once we start it. But once the uh, Calvera's forces started shooting back, all of a sudden they became cowards. They're like, oh, shit, we could die. We said we were ready to die, but uh, for some of them it wasn't true. It's easier to say than to do. Right. They're just going along for the ride with whoever has the most guns. Well, right. And that's the thing is the point is made is they're they're farmers. They're not tough guys. Some of the the ones that were imprisoned really meant it when they said, we're going to fight for our land. We're going to die if we have to. But a lot of the rest of them were just like, uh, we're just trying to survive out here and we think we're going to lose. By the way, the tagline for this film I just saw in the poster uh, they were seven. They fought like 700. I'd say probably more like about 34. <laughs> not not 700, though. Did, That's a did little... you see the trailer for it? No, I haven't watched the original trailer. For as awesome as the score is, the tr I, it, it's continued. Seven, seven, seven. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the magnificent seven. It's like I would watch that back and be like, what is this crap? I mean, <laughs> So I wonder how many of them there are. <laughs> I think there's four. I don't know. Winterfield eight. We we got the guy who did the theme for the man who shot Liberty Valance. 
Seven. Butterfield 8 trailer. Just eight, eight, eight. Butterfield 8. <laughs> Butterfield starts with a capital B and a capital U. <laughs> All right. I say it's time to break now. That's what I, yeah, we can't. We can't top that. She was one, but she fucked like eight. <laughs> All right. We'll be back in a little bit to talk about 2016's The Magnificent Seven. Yeah. Okay, we are back, and we are going to talk about the 2016 Magnificent Seven. Uh, this one is directed by Antoine Fuqua. Yep. Is that right? Yep. Who is uh, known for some pretty heavy action movies, uh, Olympus Has Fallen, Shooter, Training Day. I like Training Day. That's the one that kind of made his name for him. Yeah. <clears throat> you don't like it? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Right. I'll just leave that there then. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of with Pat on. I, I don't hate it, but I think it's incredibly overrated. Exactly, yeah, horribly well, overrated. I and in the in my in my genres, that sort of like gunning, shooting, action, grab a bowl of popcorn, watch it. Pew pew. Right, pretty much pew pew action film. <laughs> um, <laughs> writing credits. Uh, Joel put all of them on here. Akira Kurosawa, who wrote the original one, going down to. Nick Palazzo, is that right? Pizzolatto. Pizzolatto. Pizzolatto, yeah. He's best known for True Detective Season 1. Yep, which was good stuff. And Richard Wank. Wank. (laughs) (laughs) It's Reflex took over. Known for Expendables, The Equalizer, 16 Blocks, more and more action, action, action. Oh, 16 Blocks was good. It's okay, yeah. So this stars Denzel Washington as Chisholm. Chris Pratt as Josh Faraday. Ethan Hawke as Goodnight Robichaux. Vincent D'Onofrio as Jack Horn. Young Lohan Lee as Billy Rocks. Manuel Garcia Ruffalo as Vesquez. Martin Sennmeiser as Red Harvest. I think that's the funniest one. Indian. Martin. Uh, Haley Bennett uh, as Emma Cullen. And Peter Sarsgaard as Bartholomew Bogue. And Cam Gigandet as McCann. Yeah, this is the first time uh, in this kind of movie where we see everyone's nationality actually matching what they're supposed to be. Like, uh, mm-hmm. Martin Sensmeyer is, uh, he's Tlinglet, which is uh, like from the Alaska Pacific Northwest, far north Canada area. But yeah, mm-hmm. he's Native American. And I, I watched I watched all the extras on the D, on the uh, Blu-ray for this, and he said they they took a lot of care to make sure that like if the face painting was right, making sure that everything was as accurate as possible for this. Yeah, <laughs> including his hair, which was accidentally correct because he uh, auditioned with like waist long hair, and he got the job and cut it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and they're like, uh. Okay, that was part of why we hired you, I guess, Mohawk? Can we just get the hair? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, um, the trivia on this one, 
James Horner worked on this film after he and Antoine Fuqua became close friends while making Southpaw. According to Fuqua, Horner's team visited him on the set of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, one month after Horner's accidental death uh, by plane crash to deliver the completed score. Horner had been so inspired after reading the script that he composed the entire score during pre-production. Which is awesome. And sad. Sad, but awesome. Yeah, he was a hell of a composer. So, but yeah, they, uh, I think there's actually in the credits, there's, you know, in memory of in there also, but he's done music from, uh, Titanic, Braveheart, uh, what are some of the other ones, Joel, help me out here. Uh, those are the two that always come to mind as being his most famous. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure I can help you out on any other ones, but, uh, Chris Pratt's character tells a story of a guy falling off a five story building at every floor. The people say him say so far, so good. This is an homage to Steve McQueen's character in the original telling the same, same tale, except it was a 10 story building. Nice. That oh. was a nice tie in. Okay. That is good. Okay. Here we go. Some of the music that, uh, he has done, uh, amazing Spider-Man Braveheart, uh, day of the Falcon karate Spiderwick Chronicles. I mean, he's, he's something called the Chum Scrubber. What the yeah. hell? I'm curious about that now. Um, that's Chum Thumper. No, I think you're wrong. He was in Chumbawamba? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Denzel Washington and Chris Pratt were the first two actors cast. Uh, Antoine, Antoine Fuqua knew that both men had expressed interest in appearing in Western. Uh, Chris Pratt apparently was dancing at his doorstep to be a web in the Western as he's enthusiastic about pretty much everything that he gets cast in um, getting Washington was easy, but for initial initially was unsure about how uh, he would fit Pratt in there. And the second phone call between Fuqua and Pratt, uh, Chris Pratt started to sing ocean and Doa. And then Fuqua immediately declared that he's Steve McQueen, which makes sense. Yeah. He's almost a blend of the Steve McQueen and the fool Joker kind of character. Mm hmm. Uh, the theme song from the original Magnificent Seven plays during the end credits. And the cabin where Jack Horn lives is also featured in True Grit, which we also watched. Uh, I actually thought so. I'm sorry. No. We all know your skill in recognizing cabins in the woods. Yeah, no, I really was. I was like, is that the same set? Hey, so. if it's there, it's there. You know, might as well use it. Um, I mean, how often does that happen? I mean, how many times have they used the same town square from Back to the Future? Um, The cabin where Jack Horn lives is just what I said uh, from the scene where uh, Jeff Bridges kicks the uh, Indians off the balcony. Which I thought was a nice tie-in when I saw that trivia to our earlier show. Yeah. So this one, uh, first time I've seen it, I did not get a chance to see it before this. I watched it twice, actually, the kids came home from their vacation last night and I watched it with the girls and they were very mad at me. <laughs> it was, um, I don't think Sophie's quite over watching uh, rogue one again. Um, she's actually was yelling at me about how many, why do you always show me movies where everybody dies? <laughs> <laughs> she was, and, and she actually started crying when uh, Chris Pratt blew up spoilers, but, and then she, yeah, it was an awkward evening. We should get a list together of movies where everybody dies and forward it to you so you can just like randomly make her watch them without I telling will, her. I will totally do that. <laughs> that exactly the kind of, hey, I know Magnuson 7. I felt sorry about that. Let's watch. Uh, I don't even know. I'm trying to trying to think of another example. Titanic. Can, 
Titan. No, I think she knows the end of that one. The Dirty Dozen. Dirty Dozen. Yeah, there you go. Um, I had a lot of fun in this one. It's interesting because this is a passion project for Anton Fuqua. The two films that got him into filmmaking were The Magnificent Seven and Scarface. And he's basically said, if I get the money in the go-ahead, these are the two films I am going to remake if I'm allowed to. And he got to do one of them. Which I, I will think, never understand the obsession people have with Scarface. I don't either. But the the thing is, is that you could tell that he appreciated the original. Um because it it very much felt like the the Western films of that time. I mean, granted, it had some more modern twist to it, but the pacing, the storyline, the the dialogue, everything about it felt very authentic to me. Uh, and he made a very conscious decision, which at first to me was off-putting, to not do a one-for-one one with either The Seven Samurai or the original Magnificent Seven. He created seven characters that shared some elements and some relationships, some from Seven Samurai and some from Magnificent Seven. But none of them were like, okay, this guy is exactly uh, Steve McQueen or this guy is exactly uh, Robert Vaughn. It was definitely a a retelling and a reworking. It wasn't it wasn't just a remake. Yeah, yeah. It was you had the archetypes, but you didn't have the same personalities. Whereas, like you had in the first one, you had Robert Vaughn with the the tormented uh, veteran role that he was playing, and then in this one, you had um, uh, Ethan Hawke. Yeah, Ethan Hawke, which I as Goodnight Robichaud, which I think he just nailed that role. I mean, I really dug that character. Sometimes yeah. Ethan Hawke can be a little too much, but I think he was just perfect in this role. Well, yeah. uh, just specifically about Goodnight Robichaud and Billy Rocks, what's interesting about that is they decided, okay, we've got a whole bunch of characters from the first two films, counting The Seven Samurai, and we have in the original Seven Samurai, there's this relationship between this master swordsman, deadliest in the land, and his apprentice. And then the new one, we've got the characters of Brit and uh, I can't remember the name for Robert Forster's character. Uh, scrolling up. Uh, Lee. And mm -hmm. basically, the, he mashed the relationships and the personalities with those four characters into like these two new characters. Mm -hmm. And. Ethan Hawke's character was very much an analog of, of Robert Vaughn's. And um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of or seen Ty West's In the Valley of Violence, which was an Ethan Hawke. It was a Western with Ethan Hawke uh, where he plays a kind of a gunslinger who takes on an entire town by himself. It's kind of like John Wick if it was a Western. Then um, he, he very much fits into that, that time frame nicely. And he, he did embody that character. Uh, and I, I like Ethan Hawke, Pat, so you can – I don't find it to be too much. I don't dislike him. I just think sometimes he's, you know, he's a little bit of a, a scene tour. I, I would agree with Pat where he's a great actor, but sometimes he needs a little extra direction to not go too far. Mm -hmm. Now, I like the relationship you're talking about between Robichaud and Billy Rocks and the explanation of why they're traveling together. I I bought it. You know, sometimes you get that these two people, I have no uh, I have no understanding why they would be traveling together. They have nothing in common. But you've got Goodnight Robichaud, who is a basically a sniper in the Civil War, 
which 24 confirmed kills, everybody knows his name type of thing. And Billy Rocks, who's this Asian guy running around the Wild West. Robichaud isn't down with killing anymore. He's got a he's got PTSD going on seriously when he's touching a gun, but he's got his name behind him. Billy Rocks is this incredible knife guy. Has uh, no problem with killing people. Absolutely no problem with killing people. So they use this kind of balance between each other of, I've got my name, you travel with me, keep me keep me protected, and I'll make sure we get money. Because people like in the when we first meet them, and the one guy discovers that it's good night collecting all the money after he calls him a cheater, and he's like, oh, it's I, uh, what does he say? I'm not I'm not offended at all. You just got to pay me twice, right? The, oh, I didn't know it was you, Mister Robichaud. That sort of thing. Um, I thought the camaraderie between the two of them was great. And you also see that again later when they first step into the town and Robichaud is trying to take the shot on the one guy running away and Billy steps in and helps him out by declaring that his gun was jammed. Yeah, they felt the most like characters that could have stepped out of a samurai picture, the master and the student and the student is surpassing the master, but has so much respect for him that he protects his name and his Mm -hmm. honor. Yeah. You're you're exactly right, and I love the the. In fact, out of, when I was talking with the girls yesterday, they actually Billy Rocks was Sophie's favorite character, which Gun Hyun Lee is is a Korean actor who has really kind of come into his own in the past decade. And if you should go back if you haven't, I mean, we we talked about him in the GI Joe show. He played he was in he played Storm Shadow, mm-hmm. and um, if you've ever seen, oh hell, what was the name of the movie now? Well, he was the new T-1000 in Terminator Genesis as well. Um, I Saw the Devil is his, his best-known film, which is a serial killer movie that is classified as horror with the guy that was an old boy, uh, the original old boy as well. I can't think of his name, but if you ever get a chance to see it, it it's just phenomenal. But he's he's quite the actor. And did you guys find that... Um, <laughs> what did you think about Vincent D'Onofrio's character's introduction in this film? <laughs> It was fantastic. How you I got- love his weird, weird ass character. <laughs> well, I, I like that. that, that my, one of my favorite lines of the whole movie was, "Well, the Pigeon Brothers weren't famous for long." <laughs> <laughs> you stole his rifle. Well, yes, I did. You killed him. We I didn't believe that bear was wearing people clothes. <laughs> well, and it okay. just showed how little you know human life was thought of. Not that you took it for granted, but that it was it was just kind of a thing, you know, people died for any number of reasons and they just kind of kept going on. I mean, mean, it's true. It's kind of a a stereotype, but it's also kind of true that back in the wild West, like every, every person was their own judge and jury for anybody that did them wrong. Well, it's Mm -hmm. like when Vincent D'Onofrio's character, he's like, they, they took my, this, they took my, that we all understand this, right? Like, you know, I want to make sure you're all on the same page before I wander off into the wilderness. <laughs> well, I think he was also concerned because he recognized the lawman there. And he's like, I acted lawfully. You agree we're not about to fight over this, are we? Yeah, because that's the main thing. He's, he's like, I don't have to worry about you know having to fight you guys too, do I? Yeah. Well, and then I, I watched, like I said, I watched the extras on this. And Vincent D'Onofro chose to do that voice for Jack Horn on the he is a man of the wild. He's the hunter living in the forest. He's been out there for years. Dinafari said that he's forgotten what his voice sounds like. 
<laughs> so he doesn't know how to talk to people anymore. Right. He doesn't know how to talk. So he's talking. I just want to say that we got, he's got that weird pitch to his voice. But then you notice as it goes on and he has more and more interaction with people, his voice levels out near the end of the movie. That's well, a good, good catch. And it seems like his, his, his main, two main things are, He's, you know, a, a wilderness man, and and he's got the Bible, and that's like his two driving forces. <laughs> well, in the also, yeah, I was gonna say he was also a famous Indian hunter. Well, yeah, that's, yeah. But the, 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 the stop, say, looking my, stop looking at his scalp as long as he starts looking at mine. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna say a prayer for you. It'll be a little one. But. <laughs> well, and again, spoilers, but his death scene just—I think it's the one that affected it me was, the most. Out of Lord of the Rings, all over again. Oh. Well, I really thought they were going to do the hockey thing where he was just going to manage to muster up the strength and go get him, and and they're both going to die at the same time. And I thought it was like more powerful and more realistic that you know he just sorry you're getting peppered with arrows, you're not going to make it. Yeah, and you can't do that twice, considering they kind of do that with Chris Pratt. Yep. Well, it just it was so, and it was very true to the character though too that he. Uh, no matter what, he was going to keep going as long as he had a fight in him. And he did. He he tried his hardest to keep moving forward to do what needed to be done. But it just ultimately his body gave out. Well, no, I don't think his body gave out as much as that. He realized he's like, oh, no, I he's like, this is where I die. And then he at the very end, you see he has that kind of like acceptance to what's going on. That where he kind of looks up to the sky and he kind of his whole body relaxes and he's like, this is it. And then he just gives it up. I mean, he's pretty much, even in his own mind, been invincible for so long that he just thinks, you know, it's never going to happen. Like, no matter how many times you shoot me with an arrow, I'm going to keep coming at you. And finally, he just, like, accepts it. He's like, okay, well, I guess this is it. I guess six arrows is my limit. (laughs) (laughs) I'm done. But I I did love him in the the battle scene where after he comes out of the trenches and he's just walking through the middle of it, you know, hits a guy in the in the chest with the hatchet, grabs the other guy by his head, throws him on the floor, pulls his gun, shoots another guy. And there was some real cool gunplay in this one. And yeah. they brought in a guy that, I forgot his name, but he he won like a sharpshooting competition at 14. He was like a world-renowned sharpshooter back then. And he was on the um, Ed Sullivan show as a sharpshooter. They brought him in to teach all the guys how to do the, the twirling tricks, how to handle the guns, because they used, they used um, probably in the, in the very beginning, uh, when they're taking, the two guys are taking Josh's, Josh Faraday's guns away. He's like, oh, is that a peacemaker? They were using uh, single action pistols. So you had to pull the hammer back yourself before you could fire the gun. They didn't have any uh, full action pistols that were there would just wrote, will you know, bring up the next bullet. Um, so everybody had to learn how to handle these guns. Everybody had to learn how to um, properly use them. And each character had their different uh, archetype of gunplay on this one. So whereas, uh, did you notice that Chisholm only carried one pistol? Okay. Because he was he was fast enough that he didn't need to carry two. That was interesting. And now, was his uh, a double action or was his a single action? Single action also. Okay. Because you so, can only do the fan the hammer trick with a single action. Yeah. Where, yeah. 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 So yeah, Chisholm's carried one pistol. And this is this is all there's a whole thing in there talking about gunfighters in the in the extras. Chisholm had one gun because he was fast enough to take you down. Now Chris Pratt had two guns, but he was accurate enough that he would get you with one hit. 
So you notice that when he goes out into the fight, he's he's unafraid of getting shot. So he'll step out in there, and he, he knows that once he gets a beat on you, you're down. So he was a one-shot McCoy on that one, and whereas Chisholm was a fast, he was faster than you on all the draws. Now, can we talk about Peter Sarsgaard character for a moment of, of Bogue? Because I kept trying to find him. Maybe I missed a point of dialogue, but it seemed like he was either suffering from some form of consumption or he was an opium user or something because he always looked like he was high or sick and I couldn't tell which. So did I miss some dialogue somewhere about that? No, I think I, it was just kind of implied that there was something off about him. Yeah, I mean, he had all of the stresses of he was a self-made robber baron, and it took a toll on him, probably sort of like uh, how sick his soul was, was starting to manifest in his body. Yeah, it was never really addressed. You didn't miss anything. Yeah, and I watched I watched the uh, extra the deleted scenes, and there wasn't any mention of it in there either. So I think it's just an assumption probably, that there was, yeah, probably, he was just messed up. Or just a personal choice of the actor. Which yeah. I could see that with him. I mean, he's like the affectation of of D'Onofrio. You know, it's a personal choice. He's yeah. he's one of those guys that he that that's very characteristic of him and his his roles that he plays. Um, and then what about the switch from a Mexican village to settlers um, being the 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 ones that they came to protect? I was first of all just I was very surprised when the first appearance of uh, going back just a minute in this conversation of Boke. When he shot the fucking guy just, just outright, I was like, I thought he was going to like shoot him, but I didn't think he was going to just straight up kill him. I was like, oh, okay, it's that kind of movie. <laughs> oh, the very beginning where he kills uh, Cullen, Ellen McCullen's husband. Husband, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was, and that was kind of like you know, what, saving time. This guy is evil. Yeah, that guy yeah. was dead before the actor's name appeared in the credits. Yeah, <laughs> in the opening credits. But, but they did a good job of like setting him up. Like I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, he's going to be one of the main characters. Nope, dead. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they just, I mean, they just go through and and they they establish pretty quickly that these guys don't fuck around. They're they're there to do what needs to be done, and if you get in their way, they're going to kill you, and they're going to send a message, and and you better comply. <laughs> yep. I and, think that. Oh no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to address Joel's. Uh, talk because it is a big change because you've got uh peasants in the samurai film you got mexican farmers in the this one and now you've got a small town and i think one of the reasons they did that is it's really hard in a modern movie to make sure that you're not portraying a class of people as lesser and they even had that problem in the original Magnificent Seven. Uh, this is something that didn't get into the trivia, and I forgot to bring up talking about the original. But the Mexican government actually made them wash all of the farmers' costumes because at no point did they want the Mexican farmers to appear dirty or disheveled. Yeah, that actually um, that actually delayed the uh, starting of shooting because they had to. They're like, all right, fine. They had to go back. All right, we got to go back home and wash all these clothes because they had them all pre-dirtied. So if you have those sorts of concerns all the way back in 1960, it doesn't surprise me at all that the decision was made from the beginning. It's like, let's just avoid any sort of classism, racism, whatever shots could be taken at this movie and distract from the film and just mm-hmm. change it up. Well, we're just we're not going to address that. That's not what this movie's about. Right. And I, I appreciate that. I mean, they, even to the, 
the the heat between was it between Vasquez and was it Robichaud or no, no, who was Faraday. Faraday. Faraday? Was Faraday whose grandfather got killed at? Uh... Oh no, it was Faraday that was jawing him about being Mexican the whole time. I, I yeah. didn't get what you were getting at. Yeah, there was there was I think no, it was uh, Vincent Jack was it Jack Horn's grandfather that was at the Alamo and Vasquez is like, oh my grandfather was there too. Maybe my grandfather killed your grandfather. No, that was that was a good night. Oh, it was, yeah, was Robichaux. Yeah, because okay. he, he he then made the comment. He's like, you know, I have a feeling we're bonding. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's, but I mean, the they did leave out some of the, some good good parts. I mean, especially with Vesquez, you didn't really have a lot of. I'm thinking you, you could have done a little bit more development on him, outside of I'm a man on the run from the law and got no other choice. You know, if I help him out, Chisholm's not going to come after me anymore. Yeah, I mean, it was another one of those. It just seemed like you know. We're tired of coming up with real, you know, solid reasons why they're going to come. Let's just say he says yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and they did. They did have more on the extras, gave you a little bit more exposure on why he joined him, that sort of thing. But again, you, the movie's already clocking in at over two hours, so. Right. Yeah, and I was a little afraid they were going to do the 2010s thing of over-explaining everyone's background. Right. Yeah. Now, uh, another interesting thing that that I kind of puzzled over after the film ended, but. It, at the end, again, spoilers, when um, Bogue and, and Chisholm are in the church and he's finally revealing the reason that he's kind of taken on this whole project and he's kind of robbed of his his vengeance mm-hmm. by, by Emma Cullen. And when he walks away, you kind of feel like in a way he's upset because he didn't get his satisfaction but at the same time, her her feelings were a lot more fresh and raw, and so I kind of felt like it was still okay, you know. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, he also understood, you know, because he see, you know, he sees the gun, and you know, he's like, he understands that his, he, she she saved his life at the same time. Yeah, he's, right. I really would have liked to kill this guy, but he was going to kill me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think a point is being made there that he's so single-minded in his quest for vengeance that not only did he get every one of his compatriots who died killed over it, he almost got himself killed over it. Mm-hmm. And he was so much living in that moment that it wasn't about the town for him. It wasn't about whatever. It was he just wanted to get even. Well, I thought that was a great reveal that I, I literally had not seen coming. It. It took me by surprise. I didn't see that as an aspect to the story. What, her shooting him? No, that he revealed that he had oh. been tied to Bogue the whole time, unless I missed a plot point somewhere earlier on. No, I, I mean, I, that was one of those things I kind of felt was going to come at some point anyway, especially when he's all like, you know, tell him, you know, I'm here and like in the breast, blah, 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 and yada, yada. Tell him that, yeah, like the president, you know, and then at the very beginning when she says Bogue's name and he's like, that's what makes him stop. Right, exactly. So. I didn't think they did a very good job of hiding that. Yeah, you knew there was some sort of back, some sort of reason for him to take this on outside, because otherwise he would have kept riding. I mean, he didn't even stop riding. Those poor guys had to keep running alongside and you know Wait. keep up with him in the beginning. I liked this movie overall, um, but it had a very, it, it very much felt less like The Magnificent Seven and more like Pale Rider. Yeah, there's a little of that. Yeah. Although they didn't double down on the idea that the town was uh, just as bad as the bad guys, which is kind of the point of Pale Rider. Right. But I mean, just the, the, the final shootout had a very Pale Rider feel to me, to it. About For it. sure. 
We want to talk about uh, Chris Pratt's death scene, which we've alluded to several times. Well, it also had elements of the Wild Bunch. Sure. Yeah, as yeah. well, especially the, uh, the, 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 the gun. And the explosions, yeah. Well, right. and also, Antoine Fuqua has also commented that he loves Westerns. Yeah. So very rare. You know, the guy in the conversations that I saw with him, he's like all about it. So, And you he, can tell in this movie there was a lot of care taken to make it very accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so Josh Faraday's death. I uh, I saw it coming. Yeah, I, I, was, I was like, I couldn't believe they shot him so soon. I was, I was like, how the hell is he going to make it all the way there with the dynamite? <laughs> right. Oh, they telegraphed that hard if you're paying attention. Uh in his pocket, he knew what was going to happen. He had the card that he was showing to the town's person when he was doing the whole like. It was never about the card, mm-hmm. the whole misdirection thing. He had the same card sticking out of his pocket. His whole thing was, I'm going to get there close enough. I'm going to distract them. And then when they're not paying attention, it was never about me living. It was never about me killing them. I'm going to get just far enough to chuck this piece of dynamite. Yep, and blow that fucking gun up. <laughs> yeah, I always wanted to blow something up. Too bad it took him so long to go get it. <laughs> well, and then Pratt's character also kind of reestablished the 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 human life being kind of short lived and not always the most um, <laughs> sacred thing in his introduction sequence when he, the two guys are trying to take his stuff and he ends up shooting a brother in the head. Sorry, I like, shot your brother, but he should have right. <laughs> and it kind of made the character a little bit cold and unlikable in a way, but at the same time, it's like. Again, that that was the the old West, and so it felt like he kind of had a, a character arc at the end, in a sure. way. Sure, and you can see why they had to kind of roll Chico and Steve McQueen's character into one, because you can't have somebody else be the funny guy in a movie with Chris Pratt. It's just not going to work. The funny guy's going to get upstaged. Right, right. So, with the death, the girls were. <laughs> That that's exactly the reason. It sounds like a terrible father. <laughs> the reason I wanted them to watch this is because Chris Pratt dies. Because they're huge Chris Pratt fans, but at the same time, they love the movie. Um, <clears throat> it was a good death. It really was. It was. I mean, it's and it's. I liked the you know when the when he gets like five feet from the uh, from the cart, and they're like, one guy's getting ready to shoot him. He says, you know, the the one eyed Jack, the one pulls his, you know, hey, no, dude, this guy's done. He all he wants is a cigar. Yeah, he yeah. earned that. Yeah, you know he's he's gotten this far. He got he got this far. He can have a cigar before we kill him. You know that sort of thing. So it um, uh, I think Pratt had enough character that the the death outside of just being taken down the uh, the Gatling gun it was impactful because you actually wind up. I mean, that's the thing about this one is you really wind up liking all the characters. Everyone's got a quirk. Everyone's I think everybody who watched this movie identified with at least one person on the on the seven. Yeah, it's a bit of a shame that two of the three who survive were two of the least developed characters. Uh, Vasquez and Red Harvest, not that they didn't have cool, iconic moments in the gunfights, but like everybody else had these big scenes and then they earned their deaths. And then aside from uh, Chisholm. Like you got the two survivors and it's like, I know these guys less than I knew Josh Faraday. Good night, Rubba show, Billy rocks. Yeah. But this movie was about punching home those deaths more than it was, you know, the, 
the story of the people that were going to live. That's fair. Well, and Robichaud got the 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 treatment I wanted Vaughn to get in the original when he comes back in and he's just picking people off left and right and he's you know I've got the devil's breath I've got the devil's breath and he's and then the the whole scene in the the bell tower just was hard to watch that was just upsetting. And that was pulled directly from Seven Samurai almost, where you've got the master and apprentice who die together. That's how I want me and Mike to die in a bell tower together. (laughs) Oh, shit. Remind me where not to be there when you're... (laughs) Place, man, we'll go out. (laughs) I don't know who the hell they were shooting at. There's nobody in the field, but I really have no idea where the bullets came from that killed them. But no, I, I I think out of all of them, I like Robichaud the best. I just the 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 damaged hero type thing really I I just think he played it off really well. Agreed. It's hard not to like Josh Faraday, who was probably my favorite. Yeah, he's written to be liked. I mean that's mm-hmm. and he's he's acted out by a guy who's just nothing but a big likable machine so <laughs> it's very charismatic yeah i'd like to say i like goodnight Robichaud or jack horn more but uh, it's just i don't know it's like josh faraday is written to be liked and i liked him yeah, yeah. He, it's, he, like, he, it's like Tyrion. You know? i mean how can you how can he not be in your top five you know yep though at the same time jack horn was you know i mean there's so i mean that's the thing is like jack horn was awesome too billy rocks you know when he's out there and he's showing the the um the villagers how to use knives oh knives it's so easy and then he does this amazing <laughs> ninja and they're like i'm gonna go get a gun i'm gonna like i don't have time for this where are you going this is easy um just stab and poke <laughs> the only the only i think out of all of them the only ones like you said vasquez and red harvest i think could have used a little bit more but at the same time them being the survivors you're just grateful they survived and like i said the deaths would not have as much impact if you didn't know their backstory so so out of the two of them, thumbs up, thumbs down. Uh, I'm going thumbs up on both. Yeah, I, I'm there. I mean, I, I think uh, I actually prefer the original to the remake, even though I really like the remake. But uh, it's thumbs up on both. Pat? I would definitely say thumbs up on both. Um, and, the, you know, my new crush, Haley Bennett, doesn't hurt. Giving the thumbs up on the second one. You mean Jennifer Lawrence? I know. It wasn't until the end credits that I'm like, oh, I was uh, wondering where Haley Bennett was going to show up. People are cloning people. It's like Zoe Deschanel and Katy Perry, and you know, there's all these people that are clones of each other. It's bats like. underneath a Disney that are just made. Yeah, just, I just <laughs> Mike has his theory about the Disney vets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although, if you look at Haley Bennett in any of her other roles, she doesn't actually look very much. Not as much as like in this one, yeah. Yeah, it was definitely something about the hairstyle, especially considering it's like the exact same hair from the Hunger Games. Yeah. And the freckles. Yeah. And Mike, I assume two thumbs up for you? Two thumbs up for me. I'll watch them both again. Another eight thumbs up? I know. We're getting we're getting to do a run of these. <laughs> Time to you, watch you, a mockbuster. You guys got to work a harder to find something I hate. Yeah. Yeah, that's always a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. All right. So I think that's all we have to say about the Magnificent Seven. Uh, what do we have on tap for next week, gentlemen? Soundtracks. Yeah. I'm looking for this because I, I actually, when when I was a kid, one of my things that I carried around on my 
with my all my cassettes in my bag was I'd had a ton of uh, movie soundtracks, most notably the original, the first Batman movie from uh, oh. the Danny Elfman. Yeah, I'm right there with you. My Columbia Record and Tape Company scam fiasco was almost all soundtracks. Yep. Yeah. Same here. So, uh, yeah. So the next week we're going to be doing the soundtrack show, which is uh, interesting. If you want to uh, leave us your thoughts on favorite soundtracks or you want to give us thoughts, maybe we missed something about the Magnificent Seven then or now, let us know. Uh, give us a call at 708-NOW-RAP. That's 708-669-9727. Yep. And uh, if we saw you at Gen Con, thanks for seeing us. Thanks for saying hello and thanks for being fans. Ta-da. <laughs> and I've got to say about the two movies we watched, I meant to mention this earlier, but there was so much absorption going on. Well. You know, it wasn't real, Joel. Joel Steen did not get powers from people. <laughs> oh. Just millions of dollars, that's all. <laughs> yeah, if he'd absorbed Chris Pratt for real, he'd be taking over the planet by now. <laughs> oh, I can't even admit that's terrible. We would have to form, we would have to form like resistance. Let's do that anyway. All right. Fuck you, Joel Steen. We'd, we'd be like Fartron. <laughs> 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 we would all combine our asses together. All right, that that is a topic <laughs> right there. Yeah, I, I'd let people know where they could find our other shows, but I don't think they care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case, iTunes, Podchaser, Podcatcher, Blueberry, on our home at the web, www40 at gmail.com, which is also our email. Fortigo14.com. <laughs> <laughs> Stitcher. We podcast when the sun is up. Look us up on Twitter, hashtag Fartron. <laughs> you're, you're getting that right now, aren't you? <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll talk to you later. Yeah, it's like, why are we being so casual about this? <laughs>